right, this morning we are in the book of Genesis. You can see we are in our second to last week, second to last week. And we're finishing up talking about the flood today. We've talked about the flood the last couple of weeks. We talked about how God responded to the evil that he saw in the world, how it grieved him, the judgment he decided to bring upon the world, and then his choice in bringing through grace and mercy, saving a family, Noah and his wife and his sons uh, and their wives. We saw all the way they built it, they got it all ready, and then this week what we're going to do is we're going to focus on what happens during the flood and then afterwards. Now today we're going to be covering two and a half chapters, which is 60 some verses. I am not going to read them all today because we would be here for a lot longer than we have time for. Uh, and so I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this, and then we're going to hit specific verses uh, as I want to hone in on them, but I encourage you to go back at a later time uh, and, and read all of it for yourself. Um, all right, with that said, we're heading into chapter 7. If you want to follow along, uh, you've got the Bibles provided for you in the seats below. It's all the way to the left. You'll find it, chapter 7. Verse 1, God comes to Noah after the ark is completed, and he says this, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation, which means you have a right relationship with me, with God. Then the text goes on to tell us that Noah and his family gathers all the animals as God instructed them to on the ark. And then it says that the Lord shuts them in. Now, we don't know what it means, shuts them them in. We don't know if that meant he closed the door. Sometimes you remember watching uh, Noah, you know, uh, Noah cartoons as a kid, a giant hand out of nowhere came and like shut the door. We don't know quite know what it means, but there is an important lesson here that we're just going to touch on also briefly. It's a good reminder that for all of Noah's obedience, all of his hard work uh, in, in doing what God has instructed him to do at the end of the day, Noah could not save himself. It was God who shut them in. It was God who ultimately protected them. It is still in the end, and it's true for us as Noah as it is for us today, that God is the only way of salvation. He is the only Savior. Amen, church? Amen. Why we sing that God is so good. All right, so now we're going to jump to verse 11. 11 and 12, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. It says, so it goes on to say that so much water fell that it covered the highest peaks by 20 feet, and that everything that lived on the land died. Then we come to chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and, and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained. Verse three, and the waters receded from the earth continually at the end of 150 days. The waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, when it says God remembered, it doesn't, it's not like trying to say like God has like amnesia or something, like he forgets, and he's like, wow, what was I supposed to do today? Peter comes running in and saying, Lord, you got to stop. You've let the rain go too long. Oh, man. It, it's, it's a poetic terminology in Hebrew to point back to God's promises. 
It's not like when we remember, like we've forgotten something before God is omniscient. He doesn't forget things. Now, if you remember what happens after these verses, after it comes to rest in the mountains of Ararat, remember he sends out a raven, nothing, nothing, raven comes back, no dice, and he's checking to see if there's land. Then he sends out a dove, dove comes back with like a little olive branch, but comes back, so obviously not a place to make home. And then another seven days, sends out the dove again, and then dove doesn't come back, right? So the idea that Duff found a new place, found a new tree to hang out in, and this is where he kind of knew that it was time. And so then finally, after being in the ark for just a little over a year, one of the longest cruise, cruise uh, voyages around, Noah and his family, they left the ark. Now we're going to jump. We're going to jump here to verse 15. It says, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with, all, with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. I wish he would have left the creeping things on the boat, to be honest. That they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply the earth. Now, we're going to pause here for just a moment. Uh, because what I want to do at this time, I thought it would be fun just to briefly answer a few questions that I've got in the past about the flood. Uh, I'm not going to go super thorough in these. I'm not going to give you all the reasons and all the evidence. We don't have the time for it. So if you get really stoked about this kind of stuff, I encourage you to go and do a little more research on your own. But one of the first questions I get is like, how did Noah get all the animals on the ark? You know, and, and it's a fair question because if you, do you remember growing up and you'd see those little cartoon boats with, uh, you know, like uh, giraffes and elephants sticking out, right? And you're like, man, how did he get all those animals on that boat? Because this just looks like there's no room here. Makes you wonder. Well, first we have to remember that the ark was longer than a football field. It was three story, four stories tall. So this thing was huge. And, and there probably wasn't as many animals as there were today. Remember, he said, I want you to bring animals of every kind. That doesn't mean every variation of every kind. Like, we have a lot of variations of animals today that have happened over the years as they, they bred and they mixed, like with dogs. I'm sure back then we had a lot less dogs than we have today. You know, there's a lot of breeding that goes on today. You know, you have Labradors who, they, uh, you know, they breed with poodles, create what's called a Labradoodle, I think. You know, you have uh, Shih Tzus who, who breed with bulldogs. You, you have pugs that'll breed with beagles. You know, so there's a lot more variations of animals than there would have been back then. Some also uh, speculate that you know, the lands were all connected back then. I'm sure you all heard the term Pangea when you were doing earth science or what have you, right? And it looks like they all kind of fit together. And so there's a thought back then, they all fit together so that it would be easier for the animals to come and collect together. And then in, sometimes he's like, well, how did you get them on the boat? And we've seen episodes where, uh, of TV where you, you see God bringing all the animals to Noah. And I mean, it's a realm of possibility. You know, if God is a God of miracles, if he created everything, he can guide, uh, he can guide any of his creations to do whatever he wants. We don't really know. I do remember in Mount St. Helens, uh, where I come in my home state of Washington, I remember in the 1980 when, um, when St. Helens was about to get blow, they found massive amounts of elk 
were herding to the opposite side of the mountains from their natural grazing grounds. And when they did that, they protected themselves from the blow. Like they somehow knew even which way it was going to blow. It's amazing how animals can sense danger that we cannot. Somehow, by nature, by miracle, God brought them all together. Now, some asking if the, the flood was global or was it local. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Uh, it's the idea that, like, this flood was maybe just a regional thing. You know, like when you see in the writer in Genesis and he uses the phrase, the whole world, that they kind of meant just the whole known world. Now, personally, I, um, I don't think it really makes sense. Because if the flood was a local event, then why did God have Noah build this huge boat to take these animals on? Like, he would have had plenty of time just to, like, migrate to a different land, right? I mean, he had, a, like, 100 years or so. So he could have just went pretty much, he could have relocated anywhere he wanted. And then if you see, both Jesus and Peter, they use the flood in the Old Testament to illustrate, as an illustration for the worldwide judgment that Jesus Christ is bringing. And so if the flood was just the local thing, it's like these analogies, they almost be feel a little bit false or misleading. Because we know the judgment of God is not going to be a local thing. Amen? Now, some object because they're like, okay, listen, the math does not add up. Because if you've ever been to the top of Mount Everest, which I have not or never will be, uh, far too lazy for that, is the amount of water that it would take to cover all the peaks of everything is just a crazy amount. Now, there's a couple of theories on this. There's this older theory called the canopy theory that the, the earth used to be covered around a kind of a shield of ice or water. And, you know, that theory is not as popular anymore because the math doesn't quite add up uh, how much water it'd be able to hold and bring on the earth. And uh, it's, so it's lost traction in a few years, but it's theory some have. There's another theory is that there is this vast amount of water, uh, vast amount of water that was under the ground that, brought, uh, that came up. In fact, you'll see this here. I highlighted in yellow for you. It says that on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Now, we don't totally know what that means, but some speculate that there are some subterranean sources of water that were available. And there's evidence that water plays a role in, in plate tectonics. And so there's evidence for this to help them move. And so there's a couple of theories that, you know, there was volcanic activity associated with the, the breaking up of, of the floor, and it would have created these geysers of steam that would raid water all over the earth, and it would also came up naturally through the ocean uh, as the different continents, uh, the different plates moved past each other. And if this theory is correct, it explains why water could cover everything, because the idea is at that time, before all the plates moved, everything was much flatter than it was today. And, you know, you can see where it looks like, you can just naturally walk around and you see where it looks like the different grounds in the different part of the world where they hit up and they split up and peaks were raised up as they moved and hit each other, the different continents, so the different plates. This is what formed the mountain ranges. And we see ocean, uh, we see ocean uh, fossils of fish on top of Mount Everest and other peaks. We find those over. Now, scientists will say, oh, that has nothing, some scientists anyway, will say that has nothing to do with a flood. They got there uh, from millions of years ago when uh, the plates moved. And I'm like, okay, what caused the plates to move? Because couldn't the water, that much water coming up, cause the plates to move? That's just me. It's kind of like reminds me of the Big Bang. They said, yeah, everything started in the Big Bang. Yeah, I said, in the, in the beginning, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So as in 
most cases, I find that the God of word, the word of God brings us descriptions of the natural earth that we live in. Those who just don't look to God like to ignore them because it means submitting to God into their lives. Anyway, another question I get is like, where did all the water go? Like, that's a lot of water, right? Even if it was flatter land, where did it go? Well, the idea is that if the, the ground broke up, that new valleys were created where the water settled into. And, it also, and, and, and this would uh, also account for how you saw uh, migration. Because, like, how did the kangaroo get off the ark and get all the way to Australia? I mean, they can jump far, but that seems a little crazy, right? <laughs> the kangaroo, he stole the ark. He's floating away, right? The idea is, and you can research this, that there's, there's these part, pieces of land, we call them land bridges, that sit up higher. And the idea is that a long time ago, I don't know how long ago, but a long time ago, that these land bridges existed. Uh, and so the animals spread out, because animals can reproduce and spread very quickly, and they traveled to these different parts of the world uh, over time. And then as things melted, and if we had an ice age, and who, I don't know how it all worked, but at some point, the land bridges disappeared. And we see that in our own lives, as floods happen, how it changes the landscape, creates new land, takes away land. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. In the end, we don't know the answer to a lot of this. But if what's said in Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning, God, then really nothing's out of the realm of possibility. Amen, church? Amen. It still takes some faith. But as I say it almost all the time, a lot of the time, the faith that it takes to believe in an almighty God who's created all things is a whole lot easier than to believe in the faith that something came out of nothing. But that's just me. Now, some also wonder, where's the ark today? There's been many searches for it today. You know, our favorite theory is it's uh, right on Mount Ararat. Got a picture of Mount Ararat here for you. If you've never seen it, does anybody know what country Mount Ararat is in? Where? Turkey. You know what? I, I brought you a Jolly Rancher today. No, you didn't get it. I brought it for you. you didn't, she got it. Yeah. I love that. See, we award good no geographical knowledge here to, in the church. Turkey. I was good. I didn't think anyone was going to get that. Wow, Sue, you are a wealth of knowledge. It's in, it's in Turkey. In fact, there's actually two of them. There's the little Ararat and the big one. Now, and we've seen searches for this, but... The text actually says that the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. And that's like a 100, 200 mile radius. So it could be anywhere. And these are volcanic mountains, volcanoes. So, and they've been dormant, but only dormant since about the 1800s. So since this was thousands upon thousands of years ago, uh, I understand that Noah built this, probably knew what he was doing a little bit, but I'm, I'm guessing that Noah's ark did not respond well to volcanic ash, you know, and ice over the years. So I don't expect to ever find it. And who knows? Maybe they cut it up and used it for homes. You know what? They were on that boat for over a year. They might have just burned it. Like, let's just burn this so God can't change his mind. I do not want to go back on that boat. You know, it's, it's like when you work in an office and you have a copier that you just hate, and one day you get a new copier and you just get to beat the tar out of it. You just want to be rid of it. Maybe they just burned it. Who knows? I mean, where they find it, they don't. I mean, it would be cool, but... I, don't, I mean, unless it was like spiritual, spiritual wood, I don't see it surviving. All right, so those are a few questions. Like I said, not all the answers. Probably other questions you got. You can research on your own. Tell me if you find something cool. What I do want to focus on uh, with the rest of our time is what happens uh, afterwards. It says that after Noah left the ark, 
that he made an offering to the Lord, right? He made a sacrifice to the Lord. We talked about that weeks ago. And then we see God making a promise to Noah. We see a God making a promise to Noah. It's here in Genesis, uh, Genesis 9. I'll say Genesis 7 on the slide because I forgot to change it to a 9, but it's in 9. It says, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, that when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds. 15 and 16. It says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Once again, when God says remember, this is a, a kind of a Hebrew poetry, if you will. It's not that he, you know, he forgets things. It's not a case of dementia here. So why did God promise not to destroy everything again? I've had people ask me this. Like, it's like, did he... Like, did he feel bad? Like, comes to Noah and says, God, Noah, you know, everybody was evil. I kind of overreacted a little bit. I feel bad. Would you forgive me? Promise I won't do it again. Well, we believe God is perfect. If we believe he's omniscient, if we believe he's all powerful, then that's not going to work out with other things that we read in scripture. Now, some believe the sole purpose or one of the purposes for this was to restrain evil, to get rid of the Nephilim. And I'm not going to go into that today because we talked about it a couple different times a few weeks ago. Uh, you can go back. Uh, it was in uh, Genesis 6 that we covered it. And now that he's removed that evil, he's not going to do this again. Now, I think there was a case of him trying to restrain evil to some degree, though it doesn't explain well. But he's not making a promise like, I made a bad thing, so I'm not doing it again. It is, if you read it here in the Hebrew, what he's doing is he's just reassuring Noah, like, look, this is an action I took of judgment, and I'm not going to take this action again. Feel rest assured. It will not happen again. If you were Noah, that would, be, that would feel good. It's like, I don't want to spend another year on a boat, God. We also know that God used uh, this judgment as an illustration. We see that Peter, in a few places, he sees the flood as a, a foreshadowing of the final judgment of God. And the final salvation through Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked about that last week, that in, in a way that Christ is our ark. And then you see Jesus, when he was teaching, he always compared the times of Noah before the flood with the times when he would return to judge the world. So God says, I promise I'm not going to do this again. And I'm going to give you a sign to remind you of my promise. Because evil is going to keep coming. So this way you're always going to know. You're going to have this reassurance. And so he chooses what? Anybody know? He chooses a A rainbow. He chooses a rainbow. We all love rainbows. They're beautiful. And we all remember the science behind a rainbow caused by the sunlight filtering through the water. I had to put up the, tech, the technical description here. And then each drop of water becomes a prism, right? It releases the colors hidden in the white light of the sun. 
I used to say it just, it's the sun in the water, but I felt like this was a more, you know, technical definition here, flash you back to earth science. Now, some people may not realize this. I found this very interesting. I learned this only five years ago, but uh, rainbows are not really the shape of a bow. Anybody know what they're the shape of? A circle. Oh, look at those smart people. If I had more Jolly Ranchers, I'd hand them out. Yeah, it's really a circle. In fact, I got a picture here. A news crew got a photo. You have to be in the air to see this. You don't see it from the ground. But it's really, it's a circle. But for Noah, it was always going to be a bow. And in that day, they did not, I did not read in the Bible that they had flight. I don't think they, uh, they had airplanes back then. So he was never going to see a full circle. He was always going to see a bow. Now, some of you in your versions, uh, if you're like the NIV, it'll read rainbow. But you'll notice when I just read it a minute ago, it uses the word bow. It doesn't say rainbow. Now, this is what he's talking about. But the Hebrew word here, it means bow. And in throughout the Old Testament, a bow was always a symbol of war. It was a symbol of war. You pull back your bow, shoot your arrow, you take out the bad guys. He goes, I'm hanging up my bow. And there's a huge symbol here in his promise. And this is going to be really cool for some of you because some of you here will have never thought about the rainbow this way. And I'm praying that it will change the way they see the rainbow for the rest of your life. God is saying, look, I've taken my bow. I've taken my war bow, my, war, my, my bow used for battle, and I've hung it up. I'm hanging it up. I will not destroy the earth. I will not destroy the mankind with a flood again. Now, this doesn't mean evil is gone, Right? Evil is still there because we didn't cover it today, but in verses before this, in the earlier part of 9, he kind of set some rules down. He said, look, you are going to be up against animals. They're not going to like you. You're not going to like them. You're going to hunt them. You can eat them. They're going to come after you. Um, he, he talked about murder. He said, look, there's going to be consequences for when murder happens because man is made in the image of God. So the evil's not gone. So then what's changed? Why will he promise not to do this again? Ultimately, because he's saying, I'm, I'm choosing. I don't have to, but I'm choosing to expand my grace. The grace I showed you and your family in the flood, I am now going to show to the world. It doesn't mean God's still not holy, that he doesn't still hate sin, that he's still not going to ultimately defeat evil, because I'm choosing to expand my grace. And this is where we get to look at this rainbow in a new wave. In fact, put the other the bow back up for me, if you would. Charles Spurgeon, theologian, pastor, he was a a great Baptist preacher. He said this years ago. He goes, look at the rainbow. He says, look at it. And think of it as God's war bow. And he said, if you picture it as a war bow that you use, if it was pointed the other way, pointed down at you, it might make you a little nervous. That God at any minute could let his wrath loose on the world again. He could let his wrath loose upon you. Give us what we deserve. But God does not do that. He lays it up in such a way that it's pointed up. And this is, once again, not because God stopped being holy or just or willing to bring wrath upon evil, he's just choosing to aim his arrows somewhere else. He's choosing to aim them at himself. 
I mean, look at it. Look where it's aimed. Picture it as a war bow. It's aimed up. This, rain, this rainbow is a reminder that God took the arrows for us. This is how I want you to see it from here on out. That he took them for us in his grace, in his mercy, he took them for us. That's what it's a picture of. How did he do that? Isaiah 53 Speaking of Jesus, says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Not because we deserve it, because all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, the sin, the evil of us all. And this is why Jonathan Edwards, back in the 18th century, he said that the rainbow should be a, a thing of beauty, absolute beauty to a Christian, to someone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, not just as their savior from their sins, but as actual Lord of their life, as someone that they follow. And the reason it's beautiful is because every time that we fail God, and we all fail, Every time that we fall short, that every time we give in to temptation, we're tempted to feel the fear of God's wrath coming upon us. And then when something goes bad, goes wrong, we, the, the temptation to God is, God is bringing his wrath upon me. But then we look to the rainbow. And then we rest in the promise that Jesus paid the price for our sin. That God laid up his war bow against us. It's not about us. It's about him. That's a thing of beauty. That's why we sing. That's why we raise hands. That's why we, we pray. That's why we have joy among all situations. Because we have this constant promise to look to that God has given us in our son. This promise that we read in Romans 10, 13. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what, church? Saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Everyone. And, and because we can look to this promise, you know what it brings us in this life? It brings us patience in the storms. Right? Because God never promises to save us from any storms, does he? but he promised us to see us through. Man, when I was a kid, I used to love when the possibility that a rainbow was coming. I used to love, I used to get excited for it. Why? Because I loved Lucky Charms. So like, I believed at the end of that rainbow, there was a pot of gold or of Lucky Charms that I could eat, right? I'm sure a lot of us were there. Now that I know the rainbow is a circle, it's kind of, you know, obviously that's not gonna happen. But I used to love the idea of seeing a rainbow. But now, as I've grown in my life, I love the idea of seeing a rainbow because it reminds me of God's promises in my life. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords is made to me. No matter what's going on. I mean, think about Noah and them on that boat. That whole time, they were on that boat for over a year, feeding those animals cleaning up over those animals, because I doubt they were toilet trained. 
going up and down in the storm. God gave them literally no timeline when it would end. He didn't say on this date. They're left wondering. All they had to cling to was that promise. Not only that, God, Noah started building that boat a century beforehand. And we complain, we complain about having to wait on God. <laughs> but I believe Noah know, knew what we know, that God never forgets or forsakes us. Not only because of his promises, but because of his character. God is love. And where there is love, there's faithfulness. He can never deny himself or his word. He's faithful. And he'll never change because he's immutable. He can't change for the better because he's perfect. He can't change for the worst because he's holy. And so in those moments, in those storms in our lives, we can depend on his promises, that he's always at work, that things will come, painful things, tough things, huge storms that'll take weeks or months or years, sometimes decades to go through. But for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's your Lord, you look to him daily in your life, you know it's that constant promise of that rainbow, of that sun at the end that brings you through. And even if it's not a storm that ends in this life, you know one day that when you breathe your last breath, the clouds will appear, you'll open your eyes, and you'll see your Savior. And so things are hard, they're long, they're tedious, but you're not crushed, you're not defeated. And if there's anybody in, the middle, in here who's in the middle of a storm, I pray you hear this. God is a war, he's, he's hung up his war bow. He's hung it up. He pointed it towards himself. In his grace, he has provided his son that you may have hope in whatever situation that you're in. And your hope is not dependent on knowing when the storm's gonna end, when the boat's gonna hit dry land, when you can get off. Your hope is meant to be in him. I pray we look at the rainbow anew Get the rainbow back up there for me again, if you wouldn't mind. Now, one of my prayers from this is that you will pause from here on out for the rest of your life, that every time you see the rainbow, you not just say, wow, that's beautiful or that's cool. You'll say, thank you, Jesus, for your promise. Thank you for your grace. And you know what? And I don't care where you see the rainbow. Right now, I, I talk to a lot of Christians who are upset because they see the LGBTQ community and they've taken the rainbow and they've used it as their symbol. And they have a right to have a symbol because they're humans, they are made the image of God, they, they have the freedom to make their choices. They, whether it's for God or not, he allows that freedom. But we get upset because it's like, it's the, fly, the, the rainbow, it's not meant for that. The rainbow is meant the promise of God. And so it's, it's being used for something opposite than what God would intend. 
Now, I'll say that to any of you who struggles with this topic in terms of how God sees men and women. I preached a few sermons on this back in uh, 20, uh, November of 2020, and I encourage you to go to listen to them. Because I know some of us who struggle with this, they're like, man, God's a God of hate. Why won't he just let people choose what they want? I want you to think about it in a different way. If God created us and he loves us and he wants to give us his very best, then is it possible when he says that God created man and woman and man for woman and woman for man, have we thought that maybe that is what is best? That the church isn't preaching this because of hatred, but because they want what God's best for humanity. He says, look, I've created you. Here's the most awful way to live. Here's how you can live in, in my joy and in my peace and my grace. This is how I designed you. It would not be love for us to sit quiet. So I encourage you to listen to those messages and then come talk because we believe here at Echo Lake that we're meant to grow together. We're meant to find God's truth together. And that'll never happen until we sit down and we talk together. Amen, church? But with that said, I want you to look at it differently. Instead of getting bitter about the flag being used, and not everybody, you know, who's out there marching, some people are struggling with their identity and their sexual preference. They're just trying to live life. So we have to remember that. But we still get bitter at those who are marching or, or pushing certain things when we see that flag. But don't do that. Bitterness is a sin. That's given the devil more of what he wants. What I would say is you use it for your advantage. Think about it. The rainbow flag is out there more than it ever has been before. Not everybody understands what it means, but you do. So every time you see that flag, I want you to say, thank you, Lord, for your promise. And every time you see someone holding that flag, I want you to pray for them. Pray for them. Take an opportunity when you see it with your children, teach them about the meaning that it has. When the Lord gives you the Holy Spirit and the nudge and you see someone with that flag, you can walk up and say, well, praise God. I, I, I don't know you, but I see that you celebrate God's promise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> huh? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, don't do it sarcastic. Do it in love and genuine humility. Well, who knows? Right? Who knows? Listen, don't let the devil distract you. I mean, listen, I, I know it's, man, we, we got to take back the flag. We got to take back the rainbow. Who can take anything from God? Who? Who can take anything from God? I'll tell you what I think we should do. I think we should say, all right, devil, you want to take God's promise? You want to distort it for other purposes? Fine. We're going to let this blow up in your face. Every time I see that flag saying, I'm going to pray for that person. Every time I see that flag, TV, on a sign, in the sky, I'm going to thank God for his promise and, help, and, and say, Lord, help me to always rest in your promise. I'm going to take what you've taken, and I'm going to throw it back in your face. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the most powerful tool God has given us, prayer, which we probably don't even have an inkling of how powerful it is, and I'm going to use it every time I see that flag you think you've tried to steal. What if we took that attitude? How would our hearts change towards other people? How much, how much awesome damage would we do for the kingdom of God? If instead of complaining and being bitter, we started praying. 
We started asking the Lord to help us use it as a teaching tool for those around us and our children or to engage people in love. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to defend himself, to defend him. He needs us to spread his message of hope, his message and his promise that many, many other people may call on the name of the Lord. Amen, church?